0: You're listening to the Corbett Report. Corbett Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 18th day of February 2012. And it is great to have you back after that short one-week hiatus where I was, as I have mentioned now on Corporate Report Radio and some of my other ventures, away on uh, an assignment for GRTV making a mini-documentary about China-U.S. relations. So I was in Beijing, China last week, and that's why there was very few updates to the website. So thank you once again for sticking with me through that. And of course, as you'll notice, the website is being updated as usual right now, and I would... Of course, I urge everyone to go back to CorbettReport.com and to continue to check it on a daily basis for all of the latest podcast episodes, articles, interviews, and videos and radio shows as they become available. And once again, I would urge you to subscribe to the RSS feed so you can get all of the latest information downloaded directly to your podcatcher of choice as soon as each episode, article, video, interview becomes available. And on that note, from CorbettReport.com, you can obviously find the links to my other websites including my YouTube site at youtube.com slash corporate report and FukushimaUpdate.com, which is once again being updated on a regular daily basis uh, there I was out of the habit of updating that uh, website for some time but it is being updated on a daily basis once again so please go there and consider signing up for the Twitter if you haven't yet done so so you can get the latest uh, feeds of all of the uh, the breaking news and information coming out of Fukushima there is also climategate.tv in the corporate report Report family of websites, but ClimateGate.tv is due to expire at the end of this month, and I am really really contemplating whether or not it is worth my time, effort, energy, and money to renew that website. Uh, I find that it is really somewhat redundant, given the quality of so many of the websites out there that do a great job of keeping track of the climate gate and uh, associated frauds on a daily basis, including, of course, what's Up With com, one of the biggest science websites in the world. In fact, the biggest science blog on the internet, and uh, other websites like Climate Depot and TomNelson.blogspot.com and RealScience and CO2Science, a number of great websites that do great work keeping track of the ClimateGate issue. And since ClimateGate.tv was really only ever meant to to keep track of the original ClimateGate scandal, I'm not sure whether it's actually serving much of a purpose right now, and I don't think anyone at all is actually checking it ever. (laughs) So so unless I get, uh, I don't know, let's say five emails this week, begging and exhorting me to continue the climate gate website for whatever reason i think i will let it expire off into the ether and uh people will uh, be able to find as i say lots of other resources on that issue So once again, if I get five emails this week asking me to keep that website, I will keep it up and going, but otherwise it will disappear into the electronic winds. And on that note, we will continue as always here on Corbett Report with all of our various work. So let's get straight into today's episode.
1: 28 days is what the consensus in the house was at the time. It is as much as is necessary, possibly a bit more. Do you support it? Yes, yes, because... You do, you're still support- Oh yes I still supporting but... but the so point making- saying, David, this by-election is about a
2: fortnight? I mean, I mean, that's all it's about? You support 28 it, 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 but not 42? a fortnight. Yes, it is about a fortnight. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm it, it sorry, is, either it, you believe in habeas it, corpus or you it don't. Is, it is about six weeks. It is come, about on, it, come on, no, no, come on. come on. You talked about the ancient rights and liberties of the British people, you talked about
3: Magna Carta, yes. you talked about habeas corpus, either you support habeas corpus or you don't. We need to know and now a few items from our freedom file the indiana
4: supreme court has overturned a legal principle that dates back to the magna carta that your home is your castle and you have the right to defend it no matter who's invading it the court declared that in order to prevent violence people have no right to defend their homes against illegal police searches that is if cops come charging through your front door guns drawn in indiana you don't have the right to fight back or to close the door
5: How likely is it that he really wants to close uh, Guantanamo Bay? It seems as if uh, if actually the United States is headed in the opposite direction of uh, the U.S. Constitution.
4: It's certainly unconstitutional. It violates the United States Constitution. It violates major uh, principles of human rights and international law, numerous treaties that the United States has signed. You know, this goes back a thousand years to the Magna Carta. The right of habeas corpus is the right of a person to challenge uh, their incarceration. And, of course, they've gotten around all these legal uh, obstacles as you see them by uh, calling these people enemy combatants.
0: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to Episode 218 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Philosophy of Liberty, the Magna Carta. Now, as that opening clip montage shows... The Magna Carta has become somewhat courant in recent years, and this 800-year-old document is coming up quite often once again as its most fundamental precepts and really the basis of Western jurisprudence are being demolished and torn apart by today's would-be tyrants. But uh, when we talk about the Magna Carta, it's quite interesting. Probably everyone in the audience has heard of the Magna Carta, but because of the atrocious state of our miseducation system, our indoctrination system, unfortunately, very few people probably know really any details about it, let alone are able to actually cite anything that it contains – so although there may be a basic understanding of some shadowy way in which the, uh, the old rite of habeas corpus comes from that document, still, what is the document? How was it signed? What is its history? How did it come together? How did it affect the preceding hundreds of years? And how does it affect us still today in our current political climate? Well, those are some of the topics that I'd like to tackle in today's ambitious hour-long podcast episode, so let's try our best as we roll up our sleeves and start to answer some of those questions. Well, to get to the basics of the who, what, where, when, why, I suppose a very basic introduction to the Magna Carta is to say that it is essentially a peace treaty of sorts that was signed under some duress by King John of England back in 1215 at Runnymede or more accurately, was sealed with the Great Seal of King John. And it was really the conclusion of something of a civil war between King John and the barons who were uh, really unhappy with the way King John was running the country. As I say, that's a very brief synopsis and doesn't quite uh, deal with some of the fine points of the, the document and how it came together. So to start getting a better handle on this history of the document and really where it came from and what some of its ramifications are, We're going to take a listen to an interesting podcast, which I would not actually recommend to people. It's the grossly inaccurately named podcast 60 Second Civics. And it's uh, grossly inaccurately named at the very least because, well, none of the episodes are actually 60 seconds long. They're all well over a minute minute and 15 seconds long, and in fact, when you eliminate the intro and outro, some of the segments are as short as 15 seconds, literally one sentence. So I'm going to play for you seven of these 60-second Civics podcasts stitched together. I guess this is a sign of the uh, intention span decrease that we've seen across the board and the dumbing down of everything. Now we get 60-second podcasts that are, in fact, 70... five seconds long and and actually only contain 20 seconds of content but um, I will do you the great service of taking out that intro and outro garbage and just playing you the meat and potatoes of these podcasts and here in this daily podcast uh, over a course of a week they stitch together a story about the Magna Carta its history and how it came together so let's listen to a bit of that history
5: In the year 1100, King Henry I issued a Charter of Liberties, which bound him to obey certain laws regarding the treatment of nobles and church officials. The Charter of Liberties was a precedent for the signing of the Magna Carta a century later. The Magna Carta was written because the king, the pope, and the English barons disagreed about the king's rights. This came about after a chain of events in the early 1200s when King John I attempted to take back some rights and powers that his barons had been enjoying. The result was a civil war between the barons and their king. The barons won. In June 1215, with the support of the church and others, the English barons forced King John to sign a new Charter of Liberties, which later became known as the Magna Carta, or Great Charter. This charter addressed feudal relationships between the crown and three classes of the population, barons, clergy, and merchants. In the charter, the king promised not to increase feudal dues and other money payments to the crown without consent and to respect various property rights. The charter did not grant new rights, rather it confirmed certain traditional rights. At least three principles contained in the Magna Carta were important in the later development of constitutional government. These are rule of law, respect for basic rights, and government by agreement or contract. The Magna Carta was perhaps the most important early example of a written statement of law. It expressed the idea that the monarch must respect established rules of law. The term rule of law refers to the principle that every member of society, even rulers, must obey the law. The phrase the supremacy of the law means that rulers must base their decisions on known principles or rules instead of on their own discretion. The Magna Carta, for example, stated that no free man could be imprisoned or punished, quote, except by the lawful judgment of his peers and by the law of the land. This meant that the government could not take action against the governed unless it followed established rules and procedures. Arbitrary government was outlawed. The English barons made King John promise to respect the ancient liberties and free customs of the land. The barons did not believe that they were making any drastic change in the position or power of the king. Their goal was to establish a way to secure redress of grievances or compensation for a loss or wrong done to them should the crown infringe on their common law rights. The agreement in the Magna Carta was between the English king and a limited number of his subjects. It did not include the majority of the English people. However, it expressed the important principle that an agreement between parties is a basis for legitimate government. American colonists found the principles of consent and no taxation without representation in King John's promise not to levy certain feudal taxes without the consent of, quote, our common council of the kingdom. The Magna Carta also brought the law to bear against a law-breaking king. It gave King John's barons the right to go to war with him again if he broke the agreement. Going to war, however, was not a satisfactory method of ensuring responsible government a better way began to develop in the next century.
0: Ooh, a cliffhanger. Well, I will let you subscribe to that podcast if you dare. But otherwise, I think the historians in the crowd will probably cringe at some of the uh, the sweeping generalizations and perhaps some of the liberties taken with interpretation in that summary. But as far as broad sweeping summaries of such complex matters go I suppose that will suffice for now and I think we can take away from that at least a couple of key points firstly that the Magna Carta at the very least enshrined a few principles that have stayed with us throughout the ages such as the idea of the rule of law something that we were exploring er- earlier on in this podcast in this very series of the philosophy of liberty where we were talking about law and common law and the idea of natural law and, th- and how that arose well the idea of rule of law law is simply the idea that there is no one above the law, not even the king. Everyone is subjected to law, and that is an important principle that we still, in some degree, hold, or at least uh, we we think we hold. It really depends on, I suppose, what side of the globalist game you're playing on. Uh, Another one is the enshrinement of uh, certain basic rights that everybody has. And uh, once again, the idea that this did not come from a document, but actually was just part of tradition. And this document was just affirming that tradition, a very key point that will be picked up on later in this podcast. And thirdly, um, the idea of government by agreement and contract. So uh, some very important principles and uh, some very important clauses as well contained in the document. And the best part is that uh, that the document is in fact not particularly long. It could be comfortably read in a single sitting. So I would suggest that you would uh, attempt to find a, a good co- uh, copy. Of course, the original written in Old English would probably not be parsable by many in the audience, including myself. But of course, it has been tre- translated into uh, modern English. And uh, for those who don't have time to even read the text, of course. Well, today we have the magic of LibriVox and other such services to make it widely available in audio form. So let's take a listen to this E Junto Junto reading of the Magna Carta, and we'll just take a listen to an important section that probably is the best known part of the Magna Carta.
2: In the future, no official shall place a man on trial upon his own unsupported statement without producing credible witness to the truth of it. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned, or stripped of his rights or possessions, or outlawed or exiled, or deprived of his standing in any other way, nor will we proceed with force against him, or send others to do so, except by the lawful judgment of his equals, or by the law of the land. To no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. All merchants may enter or leave England unharmed and without fear, and may stay or travel within it, by land or water, for the purposes of trade, free from all illegal exactions in accordance with the ancient and lawful customs. This, however, does not apply in time of war to merchants from a country that is at war with us. Any such merchants found in our country at the outbreak of war shall be detained without injury to their persons or property, until we or our Chief Justice have discovered how our merchants are being treated in the country at war with us. If our merchants are safe, they shall be safe too. In the future, it shall be lawful for any man to leave and return to our kingdom unharmed and without fear, by land or water, preserving his allegiance to us, except in time of war, for some short period for the common benefit of the realm. People that have been imprisoned or outlawed in accordance with the law of the land, people from a country that is at war with us, and merchants who shall be dealt with as stated above, are accepted from this provision.
0: Unfortunately, that was the best reading of the Magna Carta I could find online, and I'm not even joking. Yes, well, hopefully, the form of that did not dis- distract you from the content, which is obviously quite important and quite interesting. And for the history buffs out there, certainly something that a lot of people might know in that field, but certainly something that should be more widely known as we encounter questions about these. 800-year-old traditions, and in fact things that had already been considered traditions 800 years ago to the point where they were simply being affirmed at the time of the sealing of the Magna Carta. Well, there is more to understand about the Magna Carta and how it came together and and really what it contained, including, um, well, although there are very interesting and very important clauses like that, there are other clauses that in our current day and age make really no sense at all and, and seem absolutely laughable in the context of a document like this, as is made clear by our next speaker. We're going to listen to a section, a segment of a British Library podcast that was released uh, of a talk that was given on the 12th of November 2008 by Professor Nicholas Vincent, who is an author and a professor of medieval history at the University of East Anglia. Yes, that University of East Anglia, for those who have been following ClimateGate.tv. And uh, he gave a very interesting talk on the Magna Carta and its significance. This is just a small segment of that much larger talk. So once again, I will, of course, exhort you to go and find the full talk from the link in the documentation section for today's episode. But let's take a listen to this section where uh, Professor Nicholas Vincent breaks down some of the other parts of the Magna Carta that are perhaps not so well known and also talks about some of the historical background and significance of the document.
3: Most of you, I suspect, have been to see the magnificent exhibition of historical documents taking liberties. And as you go down those stairs into that exhibition, you will have seen this particular version of the 1215 Magna Carta, the document issued at Runnymede in June 1215, which to modern commentators and to the general public is regarded, as it were, as the grandfather of all our liberties. The very fact that Magna Carta can bring out what looks like a pretty packed audience in the middle of November on a not particularly nice evening uh, is itself testimony to the extraordinary totemic qualities that this document still possesses. In the recent debates over detention, the 42-day rule of detention, Magna Carta and its supposed liberties were regularly raised, rehearsed on both the radio and the television, as it were, as one of the means by which the citizen is guaranteed against the state. In virtually any debate on any public issue, particularly any issue involving public liberties the rights of the citizen, Magna Carta is regularly brought into play. This evening I want to look first and foremost at what the document actually says. And from that I want to go on and look at the context in which the document itself was made, particularly looking here at the reign of King John and the reasons why this document came into existence in the first place. I then want to go on, as it were, and explain why the document as we understand it today is a document that really shouldn't be traced so much back to the reign of King John as to John's successors, and to those generations of lawyers, historians, who have worked on the Charter since the 13th century. The document itself is perhaps the only historical document in English, that everybody in this country has heard of. There are others, the Bill of Rights, 1689, the Great Reform Act of 1832, which play a large part in our knowledge of the past. It's unusual in English history, as it were, for documentary evidences to be brought into play at all. English history is generally a history of kings and queens and battles. But of all of those documents that are known, Magna Carta, as it were, stands out. It stands out because it contains some clauses that even today have a general significance and are believed to guarantee the rights of the citizen. Two of them, numbers 39 and 40, the Charter itself can be divided into a series of clauses between one and something around 60. Two of those clauses, 39 and 40, are still on the Statute Book today. No free man shall be taken or imprisoned or desized, his lands will not be taken away from him, or outlawed or exiled or in any way ruined, nor will we go against him nor send against him except by the lawful judgment of his peers, his equals, or by the law of the land. To no one will we sell, to no one will we refuse or delay right or justice. It's those sorts of ringing terms, the guarantees, supposedly, of our liberties, that politicians and writers on the Constitution think of today when they think of Magna Carta. There is, however, rather more to this document. Those are two of its 60 or so clauses. Others, as it were, have less constitutional significance. (laughs) Henceforth, all fish weirs shall be completely removed from the Thames and the Medway and throughout all England except on the seacoast. These are weirs to allow fish to go upriver to spawn. What on earth do they have to do with our constitutional liberties? Clauses 50 and 51 we will dismiss completely from their offices the relations of Gerard Daffy that henceforth they shall have no office in England. Engelard de Sigoni, Peter and Guy, and Andrew de Chonceau, Guy de Sigonier, Geoffrey de Martigny with his brothers, Philip Mark with his brothers, and his nephew Geoffrey, and all their followers. (laughs) And then, remarkably after that, immediately after concluding peace, we will remove from the kingdom all alien knights, all foreigners to go. Crossbowmen, sergeants, and stipendaries who have come with horses and arms to the hurt of the realm. <coughs> Some years ago, I was involved in Magna Carta celebrations in Berry St. Edmunds. And as part of that, uh, Bury St. Edmunds organized a cathedral service in which the American Air Force stationed outside Berry were granted the freedom of the city of Berry St. Edmunds, the American Air Force who, I have to say, all came with their mobile phones just in case somebody pressed the button back in Washington and they had to get into their B-44 bombers. As part of that ceremony in the cathedral, various clauses were read out from Magna Carta, including, immediately after concluding peace, we will remove from the kingdom all alien knights, crosswomen, sergeants and stipendries who have come with horses and arms to the hurt of the realm if we look even at the opening of the Charter, it begins conventionally enough with the name of the King, John, by the grace of God, King of England, and so forth, the names of those who attended the issue at Runnymede in June 1215, beginning with the name of Stephen, Archbishop of Canterbury. But then if we read the Charter itself, the first clause, in the first place, we have granted to God... And by this, our present charter have confirmed this is a charter initially at least granted not to the citizens of England but to God. It is the king speaking directly to the Almighty. What are we to make of all of this? Why these extraordinary um, clauses to understand them, we have to go back to the circumstances. Of John himself. Here he is back to front. Let's put him round the right way. Here he is, as you all know, signing Magna Carta at Runnymede in June 1215. I hardly need tell you that he did not actually sign the Charter. By all means, hand that around. This is not actually John's seal. I found it on the mantelpiece this morning. I didn't steal it from the British Library. I found it on the mantelpiece. I think this is the seal of King Stephen, but it gives you some idea of the sort of thing that actually went round with the Charter. That, I have to say, also is made of plastic, so you can drop it. My children regularly do. Why did John sign Magna Carta at Runnymede in June 1215? It was signed very much as a peace treaty to begin with because of the circumstances in which John found himself. In May, the month before, the barons had seized the city of London and had held it against the king forcing the king into negotiations from which magna carta itself emerged as a peace treaty between the king and his barons at runnymede in june why this need for a peace treaty because john as has gone down in legend was a very slippery character some of you will know that magnificent poem by a.a mill where king john was so unpopular that he had to send himself Christmas cards. (laughs) Others of you will know the Disney film of Robin Hood, in which John, played as I think as a cuddly lion by Peter Ustinov, supported by his mercenary army of vile rhinoceroses, uh, lords it over a community of trembling rabbits. Now what professional historians generally do is to debunk the myths of the past. So one would assume that in the 20th century, historians getting to work on the reign of John would have presented a quite other picture of the king. One in which John emerges as a great, sovereign, meek and mild, a fit vicar of God on earth. In reality, the opinion of historians today on King John differs very little from that expressed in the 13th century by the greatest of the 13th century chroniclers, a monk of St. Albans named Matthew Paris. Conveniently, they're uh, not the same chap. <laughs> Foul as it is, says Matthew Paris, hell itself is defiled by the foulness of John. A king who went straight to hell. In the 14th century, when there was some worry that John of Gaunt, the son of Edward III, might seize the throne of England, rumours went around that England could not have another King John, so great a disaster had he been. Take a 19th century expression of opinion of John. King John, cruel as Nero, prodigal as Caligula, insatiate in grovelling appetites as Tiberius and Vitellius, combined in his single person all the vices that ever wore a crown. It makes the ringing endorsements of the the present royal family by the Sunday newspapers seem positively polite. John was charged with a whole catalogue of crimes. What were those crimes? Well, to understand them, we need to go back to the reign of his father, Henry II. At the very end of Henry II's reign, in 1189, John had rebelled against his father, although he was his father's favourite and youngest son. Henry II is said to have died, at least in part, of remorse at discovering that his son had rebelled against him. In the 1190s, when the heroic English king, like all the good English kings who spent very little time in England... Richard the Lionheart was off crusading and later in captivity, John once again rebelled against his own brother. When Richard died in 1199, John seized the throne, although in controversial circumstances in which there were many who argued that the throne should have passed not to John, the youngest son, but to his nephew, Arthur of Brittany the son of an elder son of Henry II. In the following year, 1200, John remarried. He got a divorce from his previous wife, again in circumstances that were far from clear and that did not necessarily, as they should have done, involve the Pope. He got a divorce and immediately married a southern French heiress, Isabella of Angoulême. The chroniclers who report Isabella's arrival in England tell us that Isabella appeared to be 12 years old. Recent research suggests that she may have been as young as eight. John immediately consummated the marriage. Now, leaving aside, as it were, the child molesting element, the Daily Mail element of all of that, more importantly, Isabella was already betrothed. She was betrothed to a southern French baron, Hugh de Lusignan, who had deliberately withheld the consummation of his marriage because of Isabella's age. Hugh de Lusignan was not happy that Isabella and her lands had passed to King John and rebelled himself. Into his rebellion, he dragged Arthur of Brittany, the king's nephew. In a brilliant military manoeuvre in 1202, John took Arthur captive at Mirabeau in central France. Arthur was led away into captivity and was never seen again. The general rumour that circulated was that either with his own cruel hands or at his own direct orders, King John had encompassed the murder of his own nephew. Rebellion within the Plantagenet family was a fairly regular affair. Like most royal families, the Plantagenets could be described as fairly dysfunctional. But to kill your own nephew was to overstep the mark. The King of France then intervened and declared John's lands in France forfeit. And in 1203, as the result of a campaign of conquest the King of France seized the whole of England's, or the Plantagenet family's, possessions in northern France. Normandy, Maine, and Anjou, all the way down far to the south of the River Loire. I'm afraid this isn't drawn in colour, but in those good old-fashioned textbooks, this land in France is always coloured red because it's, as it were, England's first empire. It's nothing of the sort in reality. It's the extraordinary and accidental series of estates that came into the possession of one particularly extraordinary family the Plantagenets. Nonetheless, in 1203 John lost Normandy and in the following year he had to retreat into England. A number of features emerged from that. I've said already that the best of England's kings are often those who spend least time in England. That's because when you have a king on your doorstep, he comes knocking, asking for food, asking above all for money. John was now forced back on a realm that was unaccustomed to having a king living in its midst. In addition, he was set upon the reconquest of his lands in France, lost in 1203 and therefore raised extraordinary taxation to build up a vast war chest to pay for the reconquest of his continental lands. In the process of that, he inevitably came into conflict with barons, with knights, and with those who held lands in the English shires who did not wish to pay those taxes. He had, one might argue, the great good fortune at this stage to have a major falling out with the English church, as a result of which he was able to confiscate a large part of the church's estates in England and to use their revenues to add to his vast chest for reconquest. That resulted from his refusal to allow Stephen Langton the newly chosen Archbishop of Canterbury, to take up possession of the Archbishopric. John had initially, when the old Archbishop died, attempted to get his own candidate, the Bishop of Norwich, elected Archbishop. The Pope, instead, had insisted that the monks of Canterbury elect an intellectual who had spent the last 20 years in Paris lecturing on the Bible as their Archbishop. John refused Langton permission to cross to England and regarded him clearly as some sort of French spy. As a result, John himself and his court were excommunicated and the English church was placed under an interdict from 1208 until 1214, in effect, suspending the ordinary activities of the church in its obligations towards the faithful. The burial of the dead, the celebration of the Mass. In 1213, John came to terms with the church. He allowed Langton back into England and in an an extraordinary turnaround, placed England under direct feudal sovereignty of the Pope, offering the Pope an annual tribute of a 1,000 marks a year. Even by contemporaries, Anxious to avoid all the corruption of papal taxation, that was viewed with a certain amount of misgiving. By English historians subsequently, most of them from the 16th century onwards firm Protestants, it was tantamount to treason, the placing of England under the red, red hand of Rome. The vast amount of money that John had collected was then spent in 1214 on an expedition to France in which John commanded the army in the south of France in Poitou and his allies in Flanders attacked the French king, Philip Augustus, from the north. At Bouvines in August 1214, that northern prong of John's force was destroyed by the French king one of the great decisive victories, indeed one of the very few great decisive victories in French history, at least until the reign of Napoleon. John once again was forced back into England, but this time with his money and his reputation spent. The outcome was The first stirrings of baronial discontent, a discontent in which large elements within the English Church, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, lent an active hand, and in May 1215, the seizure of London by rebel barons, forcing John into the the terms of the settlement agreed at Runnymede.
0: I trust that that very colorful lecture amply demonstrates that the political and historical context of the forging of the Magna Carta was very interesting and fraught with some very, very interesting characters and a lot of events that are worth knowing about, and and some of the more obscure clauses in that document become more readily understandable once we understand that history. So for people who are interested in that, I would highly recommend the rest of that lecture by Professor Vincent, and of course you can follow the link from the documentation to find that and listen to it. And we will actually be returning to that lecture at the very end of today's podcast for a final word from Professor Vincent. But before we do that, let's move along to the next obvious question that will occur to a lot of people. So what? I mean, this is an 800-year-old document. What possible effect can it have on our lives? Well, in this Philosophy of History series, we are looking at the development of the idea of liberty throughout the centuries and how it has become what it is today and where it may be heading. And there is the tendency to think of this in a chronological fashion of an idea starting and uh, germinating and uh, sprouting up and becoming a a full flowering of an of an idea but i think it's it's important not to get bogged down in that chronological reading of the history of the development of an idea of liberty so much as perhaps the exact opposite idea is presented in this particular a context of the Magna Carta, because the Magna Carta, as we mentioned earlier, is not a document that seeks to establish certain rights or to create certain rights. It's actually there as part of a, what was seen at the time as part of a tradition and simply affirming things that had been practiced and that had always been practiced in that community by those people. So this was look a document that was actually looking backwards and looking to the past to try to see what should be the traditions that we now affirm instead of trying to create something new and that's an interesting sort of backwards facing way for to look at the document and it's extremely important to do so because then we start to understand well perhaps the idea of liberty is is something fundamental as we were looking at before in this uh, series on the philosophy of liberty where we were talking about natural law. Well, if there is a base understanding of there is a natural law that is there and has always existed and is endowed by a creator or whatever you want to believe in that is beyond the powers of this earth and has nothing to do with any establishment of any government, then we have some basis for a law that, that has nothing whatsoever to do with kings and queens or any of that. That's just the specific instantiation of these general rules. So that is a completely different way to read the history of the idea of freedom, and, and perhaps something to keep in mind as we continue to develop this. So, part of the so what of all of this is: well, this document is part of that tradition which has become Western jurisprudence, has become common law, and is still observed to a large extent, or at least parts of it are still observed, or at least given the uh, idea that that politicians are observing them, they're giving lip service by the politicians. So it is important from that perspective, and of course it has been part of a, 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 an understanding that has that has carried on through the centuries and that has taken a key role in, in such things as the, uh, the development of the thought of the founding fathers of the United States, for example. So let's take a look at the ways that this document continues to affect us in our own day and age, and we're going to do that by listening to a section of a lecture that was delivered by Andrew Roberts. Who is a? Uh, he was an undergraduate at Cambridge. Who uh, was has written for the Sunday Telegraph. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and of the Royal Society of Arts, and he's written books on on various historical subjects. Suffice it to say, he has all of the accolades that you would expect an quote-unquote expert to have. So he certainly has spoken and lectured at length about the Magna Carta and its significance, and in this particular lecture, he talks specifically about the Magna Carta and its lasting relevance on American freedom, although I would amend the title to say freedom in general, and uh, he starts by enumerating and elaborating some of the clauses that are still of significance in our own day and age.
1: Then we have the clauses that guarantee the serious clauses, the important clauses that guarantee our uh, liberty and, um, the, uh, and the proper execution of justice. Clauses 17 to 22 established a, um, a fixed law court. Hitherto, law courts moved around with the, co- with the court And uh, the very word court and court overlap in that uh, sense. But now there was to be a single fixed law court. Uh, In fact, there were assizes that were held in every county. But uh, in London, there was going to be effectively a Supreme Court. Uh, Fines were going going to be from henceforth uh, proportionate to the um, offence, which was something that King John had, uh, had not followed. Um, but which obviously is, uh, is pretty central to our idea of uh, justice today. And there was a right to trial by one's peers. Um, this meant, in the sense of a jury system, which I'll come on to in a moment, that uh, freemen were to be judged by other freemen and not by the people uh, superior to them in, um, in society. An absolutely essential basis for the... Um, Uh, the kind of justice we expect today. When it came to peers themselves, however, by which I mean lords, um, they took this to mean that only lords could be judged by lords, something that, astonishingly enough, was not repealed until 1949. So if a um, a member of the House of Lords uh, was caught um, uh, speeding, for example, he had the right to um, ask for the entire House of Lords to sit upon his, uh, his uh, judgment. On occasion, this did happen, and the Lords um, were almost always more aggressive towards them than if they hadn't been called upon on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon to, uh, to listen to one of their numbers' problems. Um, they also had the right to be hanged by a, sil- uh, by a silk uh, rather than a rope um, when they had capital punishment. Um, against them, which uh, was uh, was also something that they uh, were allowed to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> On the twenty uh, fourth of the great um, clauses of this uh, of the Magna Carta, state officials um, it was stated that state officials may not take the place of judges. Which is something that King John had, had had done. He had taken away judges and impo- appointed his own uh, officials. That, of course, was um, uh, was uh, was banned by Magna Carta. Clauses thirty-six to thirty-eight said that someone um, can, may use reasonable force to protect their own property. Something that, again, um, was uh, was a very sensible thing to uh, to institute and that no one can be tried on his own testimony alone, which is uh, uh, another important part of justice. Um, Section 14 set up a... Clause 14, I'm sorry, set up a council, uh, an important council which had immense powers at the time, much less after the death of John, but still can be seen as the beginning of the parliamentary process, the way in which a council turned into a parliament... Has been uh, many scholars look to Magna Carta for that, and it also established, of course, that no one, not even a king, um, can be above the law. This is what Magna Carta states: that uh, that the law was more important even than the monarch, and um, and that's a, uh, a fact that is proven by at the time and since in both your jurisdictions and in, uh, in Britain's the fact that an individual can take the state to court, can sue the state, which is something that didn't happen before Magna Carta but was allowed to since. I think it's very interesting, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Ken was mentioning uh, earlier about, uh, about Europe and the, um, and the jurisdictions that you have in the uh, European Union, that it is not legal in the European Union to take the uh, European um, Union to court. Individuals don't have the right to do that in, the, um, uh, in Europe. And therefore, we must see uh, the French, German, Italian, uh, Spanish, and other um, forms of, um, of uh, jurisprudence as being quite separate in that sense from the rest of the English-speaking peoples. In Article 45, um, the king shall only appoint officials who are suitable for the post. And that in itself is a a very important establishment of, um, of judicial practice. And as recently as 1974, the Supreme Court of California interpreted this as meaning that judges needed to be trained in law that one of the most fascinating things about about Magna Carta is the way in which, as I mentioned earlier, four of the clauses are still uh, in operation today, and it is still, on occasion, such as by the uh, Supreme Court of uh, California, only 35 years ago, um, brought up as, uh, as as a legal argument, a document that was signed nearly eight Centuries again. Uh, then, of course, there are the greatest of the of, of them all, the really important ones, the ones, uh, the uh, the clauses that um, set out our liberty and um, underpin, really, what we uh, uh, what we are today in terms of a free society. And those is, those are clauses thirty nine and forty, and they read. 39, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the basis of what we call habeas corpus. And uh, number 40, uh, to no one will we sell to no one deny or delay right or justice. The other uh, clauses that are still extant apart from those two, one, as I mentioned, was for the freedom of the Church of England, another was for the privileges of the City of London. But it's really those two, the ones that I just mentioned today, which underpin our, um, our rights and liberties. By the time of the English Civil War, Magna Carta was represented as the golden age of, uh, of liberty. And the limiting of the power of the state, power of the crown, versus divine right, became the essential reason for the, uh, for the fighting of the, um, of the war because Charles I, and Archbishop of Lord, said that it was not legal, that Magna Carta did not have the force of law because it was signed under duress, whereas, of course, the um, parliamentary forces uh, said that it did because it represented the ancient rights um, and liberties of the, uh, of the British people. Um, interestingly, on, on Oliver Cromwell believed that it didn't, or at least stated that it didn't have any uh, power uh, or force over him because he, had not, he was not a king and, uh, and therefore because this was all about the crown it had no um, uh, influence over his actions and in a private letter somebody he even referred to it as the Magna Fata uh, about as rude as you can uh, be about a document uh, that uh, clearly was, uh, was an awful lot more important than that in 1688, the Glorious Revolution, also mentioned uh, earlier, um, it was argued that because King James II had, flee, had, 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 um, had fleed London and had dropped the Great Seal into the Thames, that uh, therefore he had abdicated his rights under Magna Carta. And the following year, in 1689, uh, it was, uh, Magna Carta was uh, incorporated into our Bill of Rights, So English common law deeply influenced by Magna Carta of course um, then went on to had already gone on to form the basis of American colonial law the great constitutional documents of the 17th century such as the petition of rights, habeas corpus act, the bill of rights uh, have a colonial as well as a purely English history so these statutes as to Magna Carta the colonists as the documentary evidence of the fundamental rights and liberties of all Englishmen, whether they resided in the homeland or the English communities of America. The rights embodied in Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, and other constitutional documents became the vital founding features of colonial, American colonial constitutional law and have continued throughout the revolutionary and the national epochs to the present day as essential elements of American constitutional law. The first Virginia Charter of 1606, um, drafted by uh, the great uh, constitutional lawyer, Sir Edward Cook, asserts the principle that Virginians were to enjoy the same constitutional rights possessed by Englishmen in the homeland, which had also been embodied in the Elizabethan patents granted to Gilbert and Sir Walter Raleigh. Repeated in many later charters time and again in their struggles with colonial and imperial authorities, the colonists uh, relied upon their charters as the documentary evidence, the written title of rights secured to them by Magna Carta, Bill of Rights and the general principles of uh, common law. They were shibboleths, recruiting agents as potent as any flag or drum. Even in the Puritan colonies of New England, which in theory based their earlier legal work uh, and systems on the word of God, as vouchsafed in the Bible, one can find important features of Magna Carta placed in colonial enactments. Uh, English common law formed an important element in Puritan law, despite the frequent citation of uh, scripture, as one would um, expect. John Winthrop, in his tract Arbitrary Government, admitted that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts needed something, quote, in resemblance to a Magna Carta to restrict capital punishment and secure estates against heavy fines. Thus one finds in the Body of Liberties, which became the Law of Massachusetts in 1641, an exact, virtual exact copy of Clause 39 of Magna Carta, which I just read to you, which states in its first section, quote, No man's life shall be taken away, no man's honour or good name shall be stained, no man's person shall be arrested, uh, restrained, banished, dismembered, nor any ways punished, unless it be by virtue or equity of some express law of the country established by a general court. Similar quotations from Magna Carta can be seen in the Rhode Island Code of 1647, um, the New York Charter of Liberties of 1683, and many other founding state documents, right up to the 1907 Constitution of Oklahoma, which states that, quote, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law.
0: Well, I hope that at least gives us some sense of the so what and shows us that, yes, indeed, the principles upheld in the Magna Carta are still of relevance to our day and age and that there are, there are certain ideas of liberty there that are embedded that are still important to us and still worthy of our attention. And so moving right along, I guess the, the next stage of that so what question becomes, well, how about right now? We've seen how it's through the centuries has has become an important foundation for Western jurisprudence and our thinking about common law. But what about in our own day and age, in our own society? Well, I would like to turn now to an extremely interesting uh, presentation given by Professor John Robson of uh, the University of Ottawa, who is also a commentator for Sun Media. And he uh, gave a very interesting presentation to the Libertarian Party of Canada, a meeting in Ottawa that was conducted in February of last year. And uh, he talked at great length about the Magna Carta and how it represents something really interesting and really unique, not only in British history but in Canadian history. As as uh, Canada really looked back to the Magna Carta as one of its own establishing documents when it was thinking about itself as a as a nation. And uh, he makes quite a very interesting case that that in fact this tradition of liberty and uh, the Magna Carta is is extremely interesting and extremely important and extremely neglected in our own day and age, and that this uh, this part part of our, our history, uh, our fundamental basis as a society is often swept under the rug and people no longer think of this as really part of our shared common history, but but still is. So not only for Canadians, but I think for, for a lot of different people in a lot of different political contexts, this is a very interesting talk. So we're going to listen, of course, just to a small segment of it. It's a one and a half hour presentation, but uh, we're going to listen to just a few minutes of it here as... As Professor Robson teases out some of the importance of this uh, connecting connection of the the idea of this liberty and this founding document and its connection to our own day and age and our own society.
4: When I teach history, do American history and talk about the Constitution, first thing I do is ask the class how many people know about Alfred and the cakes, and I never see a hand, <laughs> and I don't know how many hands I get here, but. <laughs> Okay, there's, there's a, It's a possibly apocryphal story, but it concerns the uh, king of Wessex, in the worst part of the Dark Ages, uh, came to the throne as a young man due to the usual combination of slaughter and chaos, and was promptly set upon by the Danes. His camp was ambushed at Christmas, and he was nearly killed. And Alfred fled incognito, as the story goes, sought refuge in a, a cowherd's hut, and asked the man's wife if he could have, sit by the fire and warm himself, and not much like the look of him, but she said, oh, all right, but just watch the little loaves, the cakes, and don't let them burn, because I have to go out and glean. And Alfred sat down by the fire, started cleaning his weapons, thinking about where my thing scattered to, his mercy is Mercia still on my side, how do I beat the Danes? Of course, got lost in thought, and next thing he knew, the hat was full of smoke, and oh. the woman was screaming at him from the door, you no good layabout, all I said was watch the cakes, so and now look what you've done. And the punchline of the story is that rather than saying, on your knee, woman, I'm the king, or swatting her head off, or doing something else like that, he apologized to her. He said, I'm very sorry, I shouldn't have washed the cakes, it's my fault. And there's various elaborations to the story, because Alfred then does rally his men, defeats the Danes, forces them to submit to Christianity, retakes London, and then becomes a king who divides his time between governing justly, praying, and trying to educate his people. Taught himself Latin as an adult so he could translate things into Anglo-Saxon. got the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle started. And this is a very to me, a very Anglosphere story about monarchy, I defy you to find a tale of this sort in Russian folklore or Persian folklore or Japanese folklore. It tells the English and then it tells the Americans and it tells Canadians, at least until recently, who they are. This is the nature of kingship in our kind of society. and. For instance, when the Americans had their revolution and they scraped together four ramshackle ships with which to take on only the British Navy, they named a flagship the Alfred. Because Alfred was, among other things, the father of the British Navy, but he was also their model of government. The Americans always believed themselves to be the inheritors of Anglo-Saxon liberty. And Magna Carta is just one part of that story, though it's an important part. And when I talk about this, I I quote a leading constitutional expert who calls his country a land, perhaps the only one in the universe, in which political or civil liberty is the very end and scope of the Constitution. And people normally think this is kind of an American sentiment. I do teach American history and great fondness of the United States. But that's William Blackstone, writing in the 1760s about England, the nation that we would get a constitution similar in principle to. And he has no doubt that this is the meaning of England's fundamental laws, is freedom. And I think this is an encouraging thing in a gathering of this sort because, you know, libertarians often feel kind of lonely.
5: They have preoccupations (laughs) that are
4: not broadly shared. But the funny thing is, if you look at the long span of Canadian history, and by this I mean Canadian history going back to Alfred the Great, because we are part of this tradition, no matter what people try and tell you, you're not the weirdos. You just are the ones living in weird times. This understanding of who and what we are, um, John Milton called London the mansion house of liberty. The American revolutionaries talk about British liberties that they must preserve against a deformation of the British constitution. This was the understanding for a long time and I also therefore bring up uh, the story of Canute. He's a little better known but he's known as the guy who thought he could stop the tides. He's actually a Danish interloper in some of the more troubled parts of Anglo-Saxon England's history, the real story of Canute is somewhat different. His advisors were telling him, you're such a great king, you could even stop the tide." So Canute said, okay, somebody grab a chair, let's go down the sea." He sat there at low tide, the waves came in, he said, I command you to halt, on the king, and they didn't. And he turned to his advisors and he said, listen, you idiots, I'm the king, I get flattery for free, I don't pay you for that. I need you to tell me the truth, I need you to tell me the bad news, because otherwise I'm gonna make stupid decisions. And again, one, one cannot imagine this story with the Emperor Xerxes. Even if it had happened, he'd never know about it. Uh, and I think all of this is important because of a, a remark of John Gray, who, he quoted Ludwig Wittgenstein. He said that trying to repair a broken tradition is like trying to fix a spider web with your bare hands. And my thought on this is: well, at least we have a spider web. You know, no doubt the Canadian tradition of liberty is broken, but at least we have one, and this makes an enormous
0: difference. We will leave things at that very intriguing point. But only with the proviso that people will go and actually watch the, the rest of the presentation so you understand the point in its full context, because I fear that if you only hear that segment of the lecture, you will start to make your own judgments about the the professor and the, the lecture as a whole, because... I, I, there are certainly ways in which we could refute what is being said there. This the essence of what what is being said there. We might think, well, what is the point of a broken spider web when when the NDAA and all of these other pieces of legislation, the Patriot Act, and these indefinite detention proposals, and all of these things have so thoroughly destroyed the principles that were supposedly enshrined in something like the Magna Carta? Well, what's the point of even venerating that spider web? It's just a broken cobweb. Well, I think Professor Robson in the rest of that uh, lecture goes on. In, in in some degree to to really flesh that out and, and show that there is really a shared common heritage of uh, so many of the, the English-speaking people, certainly um, from England and, of course, in the Commonwealth countries and even in America where a lot of the Magna Carta was was enshrined in one way or another in the common law system there, that uh, that there is that shared common heritage of freedom that, uh, that really does not exist in some other cultures that really would have to create a new tradition. Well, all we have to do is restore our tradition of liberties. And it's interesting some of the examples that he gives elsewhere in that presentation about the ways that people thought uh, even just a few decades ago about the way that uh, that Canada, for example, situated itself in that history, that, that tradition of liberty and freedom. And uh, he gives some examples of some quotations from politicians that you would never hear in today's uh, co- political context. So it's interesting to see how even just in a few decades, they've managed to really sweep this, uh, this idea of this tradition under the rug and hide from us the idea that we are connected Connected by this shared tradition of liberty, which again is a tradition because it is based on, on things that transcend any document. And that is a key point that I'd like to end on today, that we should not venerate this d- document, the Magna Carta, any more than we should venerate any other document like the Declaration of Independence or anything, no matter how beautiful the ideals are are put or how, how well they are phrased or or how long they have stood the te- the test of time it is not the document itself that makes these rights it is not the document itself that enshrines these privileges and these things that we we now we now hold to be very important parts of our lives these things are ideas and ideals that transcend any of that. These things are are things that come from from our very nature and our existence as human beings, and no government can ever abrogate that. So that no document, no particular instantiation of any of these ideals, is is what's important. It is the ideas and the ideals themselves which are bulletproof and timeless and eternal and part of our shared heritage and that's something that we have to understand because it is the exercise of these rights by the average common people that make them what they are it is not any document it is not any flowery language and no government can ever take that away so i will allow the final word in today's episode to professor vincent and uh, the ending of his lecture where i think he makes this point in uh, well more articulate terms than i And on that note, we will leave things there. So once again, thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the Corbett Report. And please join me again next week for another episode.
3: I want to end, though, on a rather happier note. I've said that the definitive version of Magna Carta is that issued in 1225. And the most perfect specimen of an original charter of 1225 is that now in the British Library... Sorry, I've got it back to front its additional Charter 46,144. This is a charter that was granted to the men of Wiltshire in 1225 and was then given into the custody of Laycock Abbey, a nunnery in Wiltshire. Laycock Abbey, after the Reformation, passed into the hands of the Fox Talbot family, those that family famous for the invention of photography, so that By the time of the Second World War, this charter, having remained in possession of the institution that had held it since its issue, this charter was in the possession of the then Miss Talbot, the last of the line of the Talbots of Laycock. During World War II, Miss Talbot tells us in her memoirs that she bound it up in some old oilcloth, stuck it in a metal tube and buried it under the floors of Laycock, as a means of preserving it against the Germans. In 1946, she gave the entire estate of Laycock, all its estate village, and Magna Carta away to the nation. The Abbey went to the National Trust, the charter went to the British Library. Here is Miss Talbot. Uh, she was an elementary teacher, as well as being the owner of Laycock Abbey a woman who, we're told in those marvellous diaries of James Lease Milne, lived on a pittance in order that her tenants should eat well, refused to turn the heating on throughout the winter. And, as you can see her here, rather delighted in dressing, in this instance, as Ella, Countess of Wiltshire, the 13th century magnate, who in theory had taken receipt of the charter at the time of its deposit at Laycock. When the Lincoln Magna Carta was returned to England, a plan was then devised to loan the Laycock Charter that had recently come into the British Library in 1946 as a replacement for the Lincoln Charter. That required a special act of Parliament to enable it to be released from its captivity in the British Library and put on display in America. But in 1946, it duly crossed the Atlantic, and with it went Miss Talbot. I hope not dressed quite like that. In her going, the British government grudgingly allowed that she should have expenses for her trip. And we have an extraordinary, again, an extraordinary series of minutes passing around the Foreign Office, which state that on the whole, her allowance should be set at $3 a day, but that were she forced to stay in a hotel, that might be raised to $8. But that she was to leave America on the first sailing as soon as the document had been displayed in the Library of Congress. She duly came back to England, as did the Charter in 1948. It's now on display in the Sir John Riplack Gallery. I end with that story, though, because I think that, as it were, as an indication of the preservation of our liberties, it gives a very interesting insight into the way that liberties are preserved. Perhaps more through the activities of batty old ladies who <laughs> like dressing up, Through the individual eccentricities of individuals, through those sort of peculiarities that we've seen in the 1215 Charter, than in the often rather pathetic attempts of government to preserve us against government itself. Thank you very much.